Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, the 22nd of March, 2012, and our special guest is David Warlick. David, thanks so much for being here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, a set of projects around helping conversations take place for learners and teachers. Also, we appreciate support from Blackboard Collaborate for the use of this room. Coming up at ISTE, we're going to talk about this tonight, but ISTE Unplugged, a whole set of crowdsourced activities around the ISTE conference. Really hope you'll consider joining us. Starts with what used to be called EduBloggerCon, and it's now Social EdCon, the Saturday before ISTE. An all-day unconference. You don't even need to be registered at ISTE to come. So if you're in San Diego or planning to come to San Diego for ISTE, we hope that you'll join us. Uh, and then lots and lots of other activities, including um, a new three-hour unconference on Sunday on global education for those who are actively participating in globally connecting students. And um, the Bloggers Cafe and lots more. Lots of, lots of fun. Go to istheunplugged.com to keep up with all that's taking place. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't presented at ISTE before and you would like to, we do have a ISTE Live where you can present. We'll have a presentation area, we'll have a live stream, and we want to help you become a part of that conversation. Classroom 2.0 celebrates its fifth anniversary this year. This is very exciting. We have two projects related to this. One is called Ed Incubator. PBS NewsHour is our first user of that service. It's to help uh, provide authentic teacher counsels for valued educational projects. Um, as well, we, we are soliciting um, contributions for Classroom 2.0, the book. Uh, the deadline for that is April 21st. Everything will get published online. Um, we're so excited about this. If you haven't thought about submitting a chapter yet, we hope that you will do so. We have some really fun worldwide conferences coming up. The Social Learning Summit is on the 21st of April. It's all day Saturday. Uh, again, we're, we're, we are open now for the call for proposals is open. Uh, these are half hour sessions. They're going to be on Saturday. This is sponsored by Discovery Education. Uh, it's their spring event, but it is open to the whole community, and we hope that you will consider both uh, participating uh, and possibly presenting. We'd love to have that. So go to sociallearningsummit.com or just go to Classroom 2.0 and look for the logo. Uh, Future of Libraries Conference is October 3rd through 5th. So much fun generating so much excitement. The Global Education Conference will now be in its third year. Uh, if you haven't done this, it's five days of sheer joy uh, online, virtual, and free. And then we are waiting to set dates for a gaming and education conference and an alternative education conference, both of which are in the works. Coming up on the Future of Education on the 27th, which is next week, Alec Koros is going to talk to us about social learning, which should be a lot of fun. And uh, then Dick Gale talks to us about appreciative inquiry and positive deviance, um, part of a California project. Uh, both appreciative inquiry and positive deviance have huge resonance with me. I can't wait to talk about uh, their use in education. Howard Rheingold on his new book, NetSmart, on April 3rd. April 5th, Joseph Granny of the fairly uh, famous books, Crucial Conversations, Change Anything, is going to come talk about change, uh, specifically education. Jennifer Fox, the heck with traditional content, Mark Tucker, uh, lots of lots of fun, including John Hunter uh, with the World Peace Game, uh, another fourth grade achievements. That, that's going to be on April 18th at an early time. Um, anyway, there's lots, lots on there. Hopefully, there's something that will be of worth to you.
If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in a full Illuminate Collaborate versions and an MP3. Uh, we heard from Kathy Davidson earlier this week on her new book, Now You See It. That was a lot of fun. Mimi Ito last week. Um, both of those conversations were terrific. We had a Stop Stealing Dreams panel, which is the Stop Stealing Dreams of the Seth Godin uh, freely released book. Well, you can see there over 250 shows all recorded available for your listening pleasure. Now we're going to give you the chance to indicate where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard you should see, to the left of the map, you should see some icons. You're looking for the star icon, the second one down. You have to click on that twice and then you can click on the map. It's also fun if you shout out in the chat where you're participating from, time and temperature. I always know Bill Allred's in the audience couple in Australia, delightful. I'm in Park City, Utah, where we had desperately needed snow this weekend, and now it's 60 degrees. <laughs> what a weird year. So we're, oh, look at that, Rio de Janeiro. Love it. Lily Girl to the Bay. I always love a Brazilian visitor since I lived in Brazil for a year when I was in high school. And I get to practice my rusty Portuguese. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks for those of you who are listening to the recording. We sure appreciate your participation. David, this is really delightful for me. I'm really glad to have you on. Uh, we're calling this a conversation, but I've got lots of topics I want to, to kind of drill down with you on. H how are things going? Uh, things are going fine. Uh, by the way, I don't like any of those pictures. <laughs> They were up on your website. Well, I, I know, but I don't have to like them. The one on the uh, far left is one that my wife calls my Time Magazine picture, which is a little uncomfortable. Well, I, but, think, they're good. I think they capture you well. <laughs> uh, I'm doing fine. I was in uh, Washington first part of the week for the uh, uh, Discovery Education uh, beyond the textbook uh, forum, and uh, and you're right, it's been a weird winter. I came home and we had dogwoods and azaleas blooming. It's just it's everything's about a month early right now, which is kind of strange. Although I'm not complaining, I mean, you can't com you can't complain about the uh, the flowers. I'm forgetting about this talk button here. Oh, I'm getting a little bit of audio lag, and again, I've had some problems today, so I apologize if I go in and out, but I think we'll be okay. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about that lag. Uh, so, David, I wanted to kind of start with the, um, and, and we will get to the textbooks, but I wanted to start with the factory model narrative. It, it feels to me that in the last five years, it's gone from being something that we've had to kind of uh, shift our thinking around um, and talk about maybe not entirely to receptive audiences to being kind of now the baseline understanding of a, a difficulty in translating the skills that are being taught in schools to what the, the job market or the current world would like. As you speak to audiences, um, are you still using that narrative or how do you find that people are describing the shift? Um. I, I still use the narrative, but what I'm getting now, I mean, just very, very briefly, uh, but what I'm getting now is um, 
more you know chuckles than just nods of the head. So it's it's part of the it's part of the conversation that I think is going on uh, out there right now, and and it's it's very exciting after all of these years. And, and I've been in education for 36 years now, and I've been uh, involved in uh, technology education for I guess 30 of those years, maybe a little more than that. Um, uh, the the last I guess couple of years, maybe three years, have have been um, exciting because people are. Ha I think people are beginning to have the right conversations now. Of course, the money has been scarce, but regardless of that, uh, there's an awful lot of excitement, and there seems to be an awful lot of uh, investment in the technology uh, that I think it's going to be required to make these changes. So this is going to be an interesting conversation because I'm actually worried a little that we've gone through a period of time where we were in kind of a bubble, that the, the discussions around educational technology were very invigorating and very exciting and almost kind of revolutionary, and that some of what we're seeing now with both the venture capital money, the Gates Foundation and MacArthur is that large amounts of money feel to me as though they're potentially skewing the conversation back toward innovation, but innovation within the structure of high-stakes testing. Are you seeing that at all? Would you agree or disagree? Uh, well, I haven't been part of the conversations that you're talking about or the, or the conferences that you uh, have been attending. But from, you know, from what I'm reading from you and from others, uh, and, and, uh, and you know, a lot of, of what I see coming across, uh, it points in that direction that there, there is uh, uh, there is a lot of interest in investing in education, and uh, and it is you know it is getting beyond the factory uh, uh, mechanized uh, teaching and learning, uh, but it's still very you know, and I really enjoyed the way that you put it in your recent blog entry entitled uh, the tale uh, of two edtech agendas that that uh, you know it, it's it's very effective I think to characterize. Uh, what what you're hearing at these conferences is being part of the head of the long tail, and and what we really you know what many of us are talking about is actually in the tail of uh, of the long tail. And for those of you who who aren't uh, uh, familiar with that model, uh, it was uh, the the term was uh, uh, coined by Chris Anderson, who I believe is uh, editor in chief of Wired Magazine, uh, and and basically. It is a way of measuring an economic behavior where you count up products, let's say, uh, and, and in the case of, of education, uh, media, information, uh, um, you count up uh, the number of uh, movies that have been rented, the number of uh, books that have been sold from uh, uh, Amazon.com, uh, the number of uh, uh, you know, uh, music, uh, the amount of music that has been uh, sold online or in print, and what you get is uh, the products that sell a whole lot of copies. Uh, that line skews. I, I, I wish I had the skill that I could actually draw this. Let me, let me see if I can. I don't know how to pull out the uh, whiteboard. No, I'll go, I'll go ahead and put my blog post, and it does have a picture in it. Yeah, do that. Um, okay, so you put a link into that. Uh, anyway, at the right, where you where you see the curve skewed uh, way up, uh, that represents uh, books and music and movies and other products that have sold a whole lot of copies. Uh, so those are your hits, your blockbusters, your bestsellers. Uh, what happens when you um, uh, then factor in uh, books and music and movies and content and blogs and whatever that 
aren't widely read, or at least widely read as a hit or a blockbuster does, you know, that skews down to the bottom. Uh, what is uh, uh, good? What is um, what is interesting is that that curve, where it curves out to the right, what uh, Chris Anderson calls the long tail, didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, uh, because you know, these are books and music and movies and blogs and all kinds of information uh, that wasn't available because there was no way to market it. There was no way to get it out to people who were interested in, in reading it. Now, with Amazon.com and, and you know, the internet in general, uh, there's this new digital bazaar where people can present their information, even market their information to a much wider audience. Now, it's still not very widely read, uh, but it is read by people who care about that particular topic. So, so what you have in the far left there, uh, your hits, your blockbusters, your, your more corporate view of educational uh, solutions, uh, these are things that are, let's see, how did you, how did you uh, describe it? Uh, it's very vertical. Uh, it's all about volume. It's all about scaling. Uh, it's about uh, where success is, is measured in being able to produce a lot of the same sort of thing. It's based on hierarchy and control. Um, and whereas when you get out to the, to the curve, you get out to the long tail, it's much more horizontal. It's more about breadth and depth and, and specialty. It's about specialization. It's about, it's about uh, you know, uh, three of the books that I've written are self-published. And, and uh, uh, you know, there's just, there, there, there's, there's not nearly enough people who would be interested in reading any, any of my books that would be worthwhile for, for me to uh, publish them in a traditional way. Uh, however, enough people were interested in reading my first book uh, that I made enough money to send my daughter to college. And you know, many of you know that that's nothing uh, to sneeze at. I, can't, I couldn't make a living at doing this, but um, it, it is a place where we can specialize. And, and if we get back into education, it's a place where we can differentiate. Uh, and it's a place that our, that our students take for granted. Uh, where they can go and listen to the music that they want to listen to, they can make the friends they want to make, uh, uh, they, can, they can flourish in a world of specialization uh, as opposed to becoming compliant in a world of sameness. I really appreciate you describing that, David. I think what's interesting to me is it feels as though the head of the tail or the head of the demand curve will often take the language of the of the tail or the reform movement and and use it, but it doesn't feel as though it's the same. Um, as, as you think about self-learning and students and um, kind of the, the ways in which we might rethink learning uh, within schools, do you, do you feel like we're at a, a point of actually needing to clarify what those actually mean so that they don't get co-opted by the larger kind of vertical hierarchical control um, narratives? Well, I'm trying, I, I, I emailed to you the other day saying that, that I, there was something that I walked away from the uh, Beyond the, the Textbooks uh, uh, forum that would probably raise some eyebrows. And I, I blogged about it, I think, yesterday. Um, and and that, that is that I'm not ready to unwelcome the corporate world uh, yet. I'm not. I'm not ready. I, I've been in education long enough to know, I think, or to feel that that I can be surprised. Uh, um, I, you know, there, there is a type of education, a type of learning, a type of teaching, an approach to uh, uh, to to you know the types of experiences that our students, I believe. 
perspective need to be having uh, that needs to happen. And if a, a textbook industry uh, is able to provide this, then uh, then I think that's fine. I, I don't really care uh, who does it, and, and I don't care that they're making a living doing it because we're all making a living uh, doing what we're doing. The the problem is that. Um, that in, in in some instances that we could we could name uh, these industries these corporations become so wealthy uh, that the the system has been skewed in their direction uh, and and this is one of the realizations that I that I uh, discovered at the meeting where um, Discovery Education explained that if they you know wanted to create a sustainable business in supporting education with their their content uh, they needed to go where the money was and the money is in textbooks. Uh, textbooks have traditionally, in most cases, have traditionally been uh, a, a uh, dependable source of uh, money for those who serve education. So they ha they are forced, in a sense, to uh, shape uh, their product as a textbook. And and you know this is the problem I think where um, we're due to legislation, uh, due to the past success of uh, of large corporations, uh, there is a tendency to keep things. Uh, the way that they are, uh, I, I know that I've kind of gotten away from your your original question, uh, but but you know I I I, I came away with a sense from them and and uh, they assured us that others in the textbook industry uh, do realize that they need to do things differently and that 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 uh, and that they're actually trying to to accomplish this um, and if they do I think that that's fine. Um, I, I, I suspect it is probably more likely than to come out of uh, the general education community an open source uh, 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 project or something like that. But um, uh, you know, I, I think it could come from. It could, it, I just wanted to come. So this is a hard question, and I think it's kind of the reform versus revolution question. It's hard for me not to look at sort of the current Wall Street situation and see a parallel here, which is. Can an industry actually reform itself when the financial incentives are so high? And I'm kind of wondering, do we really need textbooks? I mean, we have tools now for the aggregation of web content. Uh, make an argument that the textbook is an important, plays an important role in education aside from funding companies. Well, um, I think that the money is still important. And and I think that in going around and saying that we don't need textbooks uh, is is saying to some politicians we don't need that money, and it be, it becomes an opportunity for them to say well here we can do education a lot more cheaply and take the money uh, away. Um, uh, I, I I mean in looking at uh, uh, um, Discovery Education's product. Uh, they, they did a very, very brief demonstration, uh, but a lot of the focus of their demonstration was on how their uh, materials can be easily printed out and handed out on paper to their students because the assumption is still that most classrooms, most students do not have uh, the technology that they, that they need in order to interact with the types of, 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 of textbooks. Uh, and I just did the little quote symbol there uh, of textbooks uh, that we would like for them uh, to be using, that the textbook industry would like for them to be using. Um, 
Uh, somebody made the point that uh, you know whatever comes out, uh, it needs to be platform agnostic, um, and I agree with that. But the the point was made that you know look, we don't have money for textbooks. Uh, we got kids coming in with smartphones. It needs to be able to work on a smartphone, um, and and I understand that sentiment. But at the same time, do we use a, a smartphone as the the common denominator of what can be offered? Uh, my my point is that we still need to invest in the technology infrastructure that's going to be necessary to support uh, whatever we see uh, coming out, whether it be uh, some sort of a platform that is uh, created and, and marketed by textbook industry or out of the open source, or just just uh, 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 you know, people just hobbling together technically uh, the things that they need for their, their classrooms, which is certainly a, a possibility. This is a conversation that can go on forever, but it's a fascinating one, and you've raised some issues that I didn't think about. It feels like a true dilemma. Uh, if, if, the, if the narrative that we don't need textbooks, that we can aggregate content on the web as effectively, means there will be a reduction in financing, that's uh, uh, awkwardly balanced against the fact that when that financing comes through, it often goes towards the very things that, that some of us would say are counter to the dramatic historical shift in teaching and learning that potentially could take place. Let's move on, and we can come back in the Q&A if you want to. Tell me about personal learning networks. You've talked about them in, in the, um, within the context of kind of a gardening analogy. Um, has the story on personal learning networks changed with the volume of people contributing content? And how do you see curation and the building of learning networks now? Um, wasn't really prepared for that one. Uh, I, you know, in, in, in general, I, don't, I haven't seen it change in, uh, in what's going on. Uh, um, I've, I've seen it uh, expressed in a number of ways and mixed in in a, uh, uh, inappropriately with uh, professional learning communities and things like that. Although I, I see the two working together, uh, but but what has been exciting to me over the last uh, uh, couple of years now is how it has become so mobile. Uh, uh, used to be when I was doing my, you know, my learning, my uh, personal learning, I was sitting in an ergonomic chair at my desk, and I had to be sitting at my laptop at my desk uh, to be doing that. Now, with the iPad and the iPhone, you know, I can pull it out at the uh, at the airport, the train station, you know, out in the backyard, and I can catch up on uh, uh, reading that people have uh, shared with me. Um, it is. Uh, it's. It's not quite as technical now. Now it used to be we had to subscribe to specific uh, 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 blogs and, and Twitter feeds and things like that. Uh, it all seems to happen uh, automatically in a sense through. Um, uh, or what's one that I use uh, most often? Uh, Flipboard. Um, and um, you know, it, 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 it has. It has become a much more integral part of how. I live today, and I and I, I would make a special point of that. That it's not something that I'm doing professionally. Uh, it's not something that I'm doing uh, just for my job. It's part of my lifestyle, uh, and because it has become so mobile, uh, it has become an integral and uh, um, uh, you know really indistinguishable part of you know how I live my daily life. Uh, and and it's uh, it's I think I think it's it's really a cornerstone of 
uh, what we need to be aiming toward uh, with our students. That that um, it, it, what our kids have learned or what they do learn is very very important. But it's not as important as it used to be. You know what they're learning changes. You know the answers in 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 some cases the answers on the test change from year to year uh, because we live in a time of rapid change and that it has uh, uh, what has become much 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 more important is that they are learning to teach themselves uh, that they are not just learning the skills uh, for lifelong learning but that they are developing the habits of a learning lifestyle. Five years ago, for that first uh, ISTIA JBloggerCon, it felt like you could pretty much keep track of most of the conversation. But now there's so much going on that you could post something and I would never know it. How has that changed your own practice in terms of your own personal learning network? Um, well, what I find myself following is not individual bloggers. I mean, what 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 impacts me more? is uh, retweets. <laughs> what impacts me more is not just what you are writing, but what you are reading. Uh, as you encounter something that, uh, that interests you, that you think is important, and you retweet it out, uh, I get not only your blog, but I'm getting the blogs that, that you read. And of course, we could do that technically before, but it has become a part of what streams through uh, my iPad. Every day, and and I just you know I stick my straw in every chance that I can and take advantage of it. And again, more times than not, I'm not actually reading the person who tweeted. I'm reading what that person was impressed with that they read. So it's it's a real hodgepodge of ideas. I'm still getting a little bit of audio lag, and I apologize for stepping on your toes there. Are we learning something about social learning? Through personal learning networks, are are we in a place now where we're beginning to rethink how students learn by virtue of how teachers have been learning through the blogosphere? Um, I could not talk about that uh, uh, authoritatively because I know that there are researchers out there who are who are actually studying that. Uh, so I, I would I would hesitate to to uh, share an opinion. What I what I would say is that we are learning to develop those habits. Uh, we are, uh, are, as educators who are engaged in this, we are learning uh, to, to cultivate uh, our own habits of learning and we are sharing those habits with each other. Uh, so, so you know, the, the science of network learning, I, I, I can't really uh, say much about. Uh, uh, but, but just, you know, just the practice and, and the, the, the thrill of uh, having so much information coming in. Uh, in my, my experience in education technology has been very much a, uh, a stairs, a set of stairs, where um, uh, you know, there was a point when I first got involved in computers, you had to program the computers. I learned how to program in BASIC, and suddenly uh, I was plunged up to a whole new level of possibilities, of opportunities, things that I could do to serve my students. But then it kind of leveled out. I just got better and better at it. And then something else came along and I got plunged up. Uh, because of the nature of information, because I had to buy books to, to learn this sort of thing, um, it was you know, it was very jagged. You know, I'd level out and then plunge up, level out and then plunge up. Since, um, since we have started being able to share and connect uh, ideas and writings with each other, uh, it's 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 very much become a uh, uh, you know a constant incline 
uh, learning something new every day and, and knowing that, you know, that, that any day I could get up and learn something that is just going to completely uh, uh, revolutionize uh, my thinking about how I serve education. Um, I'm, I'm kind of approaching one of those right now, uh, and I don't know if, it, if, it, if it's actually happening or, or it just feels like it. But um, you know, like 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 a lot of us, I, I had some reservations about the iPad when it first came out, and it's a consumption tool, blah blah blah. But um, uh, and I have had some reservations about iBooks, uh, iBooks too, uh, when they came out. But I went ahead and, and took the uh, the time being self-published. I can take my text from my books and dump them anywhere I want to. Uh, I downloaded the uh, iBooks um, iBooks uh, author, and uh, uh, and have started playing around with that, and have have been quite amazed with some of the, the possibilities of what you can do. I mean, in, in the advertising, they're, they're not showing you a lot of what, you know, if you know how to do a little coding uh, of what you can actually, uh, the kinds of experiences you can actually create uh, with these iBooks. And, and, and I think this is, this is sort of a, a, um, a linchpin of this new information platform environment, uh, education platform environment, uh, is that it is a place or a product that whose value is not in what it is when it's launched, but it's in what it can become. And, and the iPad is a, a perfect example of this. You know, the iPad is launched into this consumption tool, but the real excitement of the iPad to me is what it, it, it has become as a result of creative app uh, developers. Uh, and, and I think that the education environment needs to be very much the same way. It needs to be a platform within which uh, creative, clever educators can continually reinvent new ways of using this, uh, uh, this platform. But it's not, uh, you know, a proprietary uh, standards-driven uh, uh, um, box that you have to buy and then play just inside that box but that it's actually a set of building blocks that can be put together in an infinite number of ways by, uh, by creative educators and by creative students. And I feel like, you know, with, with, the, so iBooks, with, with the iBooks author, uh, and, and again, I just started with it, but it's, it's really causing me to, to uh, rethink what a digital book might be and how it might be marketed or how it might be distributed, uh, it, the shape that it might take, uh, that, that a book might come to look a little bit more like an app than a book. Well, I always try and make sure that people know that you, you are actually the originator of the EduBloggerCon and Bloggers Cafe ideas, which have been so much fun over the last five years. Um, but part of what I think we've seen in those events is, and especially in the use of social media amongst educators and personal learning networks is we've seen the opportunity for or the potential for teachers to reshape the profession through horizontal conversations. Um, do you think that that's going to happen? Is there, uh, are the conversations gaining in depth and weight enough that teachers will have more of a voice in the larger narratives around education? Or um, is it just going, is, is that not is that an optimistic view? Um, well, I think it's, it has certainly increased, and um, 
and it, it, is, it is exciting. I, I can't remember if it was the first ISTE uh, that had the Adriblogicon or the one right afterwards, but there was a, there was a dramatic change in my in, in my view uh, in the nature of the conference, in that there was as much learning going on outside of the conference halls and, and the presentation rooms as there was uh, inside because of this this open communication and, and all of these venues in the halls where you could go and you could talk to people. It's almost like you couldn't turn around without uh, learning something. And I think that, that, that this is part of what we need to be pushing uh, for in uh, schools uh, is, a, is a, a culture of learning uh, and, and, uh, and and you know, that's a, a term that's been used a lot, but but I think that in a lot of cases when they say we want our school to be a culture of learning, we're thinking you know a school where the, you know, the kids are learning and they're learning really well. But it needs to be a culture where you're not just respecting the learning that the kids are doing, but you're respecting the learning that the teachers are doing and the learning that the uh, librarian is doing, the learning that the principal is doing, and that this is this is a part of a huge conversation around you know what I have just learned and how that has made me a bigger person uh, than I was before. Um, I, 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 there are certainly pockets where that's going to be difficult to achieve. Uh, there are schools that are going to be very difficult to reach uh, with this, this conversation. But um, you know, I, I keep thinking back to, uh, uh, I, 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 sorry I keep talking about Apple, uh, but, but you know what? What they did with the iPhone and with the with the iPad and, and others is that they created a uh, a product that we didn't know we couldn't live without. You know, and that, that's in a sense what they were after is you know we want to sell something that people didn't know that they couldn't live without. And 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 I think that that that's what we need in education is a uh, a platform, whatever you want to call it, but some some sort of an environment. Uh, within which uh, you, you are compelled to go in and start carrying on these conversations and building these these learning products and and in uh, uh, and, and crafting learning experiences for our students that that are just you know so compelling that they you know it, it school turns into play and play turns into school learning and play you know become very much the same thing. So that's where I feel like we have this uh, kind of cognitive dissonance or we have some competing narratives that when the technology enables relationships and uh, the kind of core interpersonal practices that, that lead to learning, then it's very easy to, to feel confident about the technology. But it often feels like the technology can also be used in many ways to kind of depersonalize especially in conversations around sort of data and dicing up the data in order to do a better job. Uh, and I always laugh when you, know, you hear about these massive online courses of you know, 30,000 people where, where the promise is it will be the most engaging education. And that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, uh, do you feel like I'm exaggerating if, if I say that it, that it feels like we have those two different capabilities or potentials in the technology and that we have to be really careful about distinguishing between the two? Absolutely. Um, I, I, th I think that um, the whole issue about data is an excellent uh, example. Uh, and, and from the perspective of um, 
of you know, many of the people who are trying to, who are you know, investing in reforming education, uh, this is a natural direction uh, for them to want to go in. Uh, that the computers are very good at measuring. Computers are very good at visualizing, and, and you know that that if we can, you know, if we can better control the learning environment with data, then we can uh, better teach our children. We can better educate uh, our children. Uh, the the the, the the sadness, in my opinion, is that, that I love data, uh, and I think that data ought to be part of uh, literacy, that this is, this is something that kids ought to be learning to do, that they ought to be part of uh, the uh, uh, analyzing of data of their own uh, performance, but also of the world around them and learning how to use this data to tell stories, to draw conclusions. Um, uh, but you know, to answer your question, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there's a real, a real tendency, and uh, uh, perhaps a seductive uh, tendency, to use technology in these ways. Uh, and it is a, uh, in my opinion, it is a, a complete and total waste. For you, if you think about the long-term ultimate goal of kind of rethinking education at this moment of historical change, how much of your vision is driven by the idea of uh, student-driven learning, or, or what kind of compelling core issue really drives you where you hope that in 10 years we'll see the bigger picture? The other day, uh, I read a blog post before the Beyond the Textbook um, forum uh, where I, I used a Google Forms and I asked people to post a simile for the textbook. So the textbook ought to be like this, like that. And then some of them that came through were, you know, it should be like a quest, it should be like a production studio, it should be like a, uh, an extension of the brain. But I got to thinking, you know, when I, when I was thinking this morning about, about this conversation, that if I turn this around, uh, these are the sorts of things that our students want to do. They want to take a class. They want they want a production studio. They want to extend their brains. They they I mean one of the suggestions was a reality game. They want to play reality. Uh, they 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 want to play with the information that they, that defines their world and uh, and do things with it and explore it by playing with those numbers or that information or those connections. Uh, they want to uh, to playlist. Uh, uh, knowledge. They want empowerment. They want magic. Uh, and and you know we live in a world today where we can do magic with with uh, information. And and you know I think one of the one of the the realizations that I think could fairly easily be be made by most everybody is that. Uh, when when we are after school, after school is over, after we've graduated, after we've entered the workplace, our lifestyles, our families, and so on, uh, much of the learning that we do in order to do our jobs uh, is done in these ways. It's done on quests. It's done by having the tools to produce with. It's done uh, by having tools to extend our brains and extend our hands. It's 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 done by playing with reality. It's done by giving ourselves uh, permission to make mistakes. I mean, this is this is the the, the kinds of, uh, of learning experiences that we've all been talking about are, are very similar to the learning experiences that we take for granted as, uh, uh, as, as professionals, uh, as adults. Um, you know, the, uh, we, we all continue to learn. We all continue to learn in exciting ways, and we, we learn by play. 
uh, if you enjoy your job, especially you learn by play. And you know why not have uh, uh, these same types of learning experiences for our students in the classroom, especially when the last thing that we need them to do is be leaving school hating learning leaving school thinking, I don't want to ever have to sit in a classroom again. I don't want to have to go through that again. Um, and that's, that's the most horrible thing that I could see happening uh, because they, they, we desperately need for them to be uh, learning the rest of their lives. Do, do we spend too much time trying to justify learning as resulting in practical job skills? Um, do we need to be talking more about the value of learning for intellectual independence and perspective and kind of personal satisfaction? Uh, yes, uh, but but I mean yes, <laughs> uh, of course. Uh, learning is you know part of being human. Uh, learning is growing. Uh, you know, my, my my wish when I was teaching the classroom was that my students are leaving larger than they came in, and and I don't mean that they put on weight and gotten taller, but that they are that they think of themselves as more uh, person because of of what they've learned. Um, but but uh, I don't want to de-emphasize the job skills. Uh, because I think that, that that is important and that is critical. The the problem is we don't know what those job skills are. You know, for the first time in history, we're preparing our students for a a workplace and a lifestyle for a future that we can't clearly describe, and that we know exact that we think that we know exactly what they need to be learning to be ready for their future is the height of arrogance, in my opinion. Uh, just recently, I read a statistic that. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, mobile app industry in the United States is employing 146,000 people. Now, uh, this is an industry that didn't exist in 2007. You know, this is this just the last five years that this industry has been in existence, and it's already employing almost a half a million people. And these are people who, by and large, did not learn to do what they what they're doing while they were in high school or even in college. These were people who knew how to teach themselves the skills that they needed for uh, uh, this new type of tool, this new type of, of audience, this new type of application, this new lifestyle, uh, 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 mobile app lifestyle. Uh, these were people who, who learned these sorts of things because they knew how to learn. Uh, we need to be making sure that all of our students are leaving school with the skills and the curiosity and the passion. To, to keep on learning and that, that learning is an adventure, not a job, but that learning is an adventure that makes, uh, makes you, you know, bigger every day. Work and play are just, uh, they're, they're becoming the same in a way. I mean, and, and I, I can say that because I, I work out of my home. Uh, I walk into my office right out of the uh, bedroom in the morning. Um, it's it's fun. I enjoy it. Uh, when I want to go take a walk, I shut my shut the lid of my laptop and I go out and take my cholesterol walk. Uh, for me, in particular, uh, work and play are very much uh, the same thing. They blend together. Uh, teaching and learning. I think uh, even in the classroom needs to uh, blend together. Teachers need to be doing more learning. Learners need to be doing more teaching. Uh, that they that there's there's uh, you know that they're very much rolled together in one. Um, I, the other day I um, went into Google Translation. I took can't remember the, the exact details, but I took the word um, teach 
and I may get, be getting this wrong, but I took the word teach and I translated it into Danish. And then you take that word and translate it from Danish back into English and it translates as learn. They're, they're, they're much the same thing. They roll together and I, and I think that teaching teachers and learners need to be rolling those things together. It's fun. So I like that vision and I like your description of your work life. But I think for me kind of the crux of the matter is there's an independence of thinking and of uh, motivation that are required to, to do the kind of independent work you're doing, which is very different than the kind of uh, skill set or compliance that's required to work in a large corporation. And it feels like that's kind of the hot spot which is, are we ready to allow students the kind of independence that would prepare them for making independent choices to be an app developer or to be a David Warlick kind of uh, you know, sole proprietor? Uh, or, or even with all of the language we're using, are we still expecting that people will not be independent? I, I agree that, uh, that there is a sense um, among us in education that, that even though we're talking about 21st century skills and independence and creativity and that sort of thing, that there, 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 there's an awful lot that is working against that. Um, and, and there may be, uh, you know, there may be specific reasons for that. But that said, um, I don't think that that is absolutely pervasive. Uh, I've, I've talked with a number of uh, uh, technology people, people in the technology industry, who complain that the programmers that they're hiring right out of university um, know their programmers, they know their stuff really well, but they don't know how to creatively solve problems with what they know. They don't know how to use it. Uh, um, uh, they, you know, they learned the code. I mean, my son spent a year majoring in computer science. He absolutely hated it. He absolutely hated it uh, because they were teaching him programming the same way I was taught grammar. You know, they were teaching syntax uh, instead of teaching him how to do interesting things with computers. I love programming because I approach it as um, I, I would like for, for my computer to do this. I would like to be able to make this available to people who use my, my website. And so I go out and I find the code and figure out how to, how to uh, hack the code together in order to make this event happen or this service happen or whatever. And I love it. It's like, it's like playing with toys. It's like playing uh, with, with Legos. But what they're, what they're getting is people who know the syntax, but not people who uh, know how to creatively uh, uh, change the rules of that syntax in order to, to solve this particular problem. Another instance uh, that I uh, experienced uh, not too long ago, I was at a, 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 lun a luncheon, and I was sitting beside of a woman who was uh, head of uh, HR for some corporation. And uh, she, she, we got to talking about where we were from. She had just recently moved to the Raleigh area, and uh, uh, she and, and I got to ask her some questions about workforce and, and you know, what sorts of skills they're looking for. And she said, you know, when I was uh, uh, when I was interviewing for one of the the jobs, uh, she said the interviewer told me that the fact that I had only had two jobs uh, prior to this time was a, a disadvantage. 
uh, that what people are looking for, at least in the job she was looking at, what people were looking for were people who had already had five or six or seven jobs because they were people who were walking in with not just two ways of doing things, but with five or six or seven ways of doing things. I think in some industries, they really are looking for and desperately need creative thinkers, independent thinkers, uh, and, and people who are willing to move around and change uh, environments and locations to, uh, to, to experience new ways of, of solving problems. Uh, and, and there are certainly parts of the industry who uh, want compliance. Uh, uh, but I, I don't think I don't think that that characterization is uh, is as pervasive as perhaps it was uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, all of us are kind of feeling the elephant here, and we don't really know. I think there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance, though, taking place, which is uh, for all the talk of independence. Most corporations still make it fairly clear that you're constrained in what you're allowed to blog about or yeah. not saying anything that would disparage the company. And there's still very much a sense that, well, we want you to be creative, but we still will ask you for your Facebook password when you apply for the job. Yep. I, I can't, I can't uh, deny that. Hey, this is really fun. We've only got about eight minutes left, but if you had a question for David that didn't come up in the chat or, or that I didn't ask, this is a really good time to ask it. You can do so either by putting it in the chat again, or you can raise your hand and take the microphone. To raise your hand, it's the third icon over in the participant window. It's a raised hand, and you just click on that, and I'm glad to give you the mic. Um, David, a, a personal question about our own kind of group of those who met five years ago at a blogger con. And uh, it feels as though, if anything, that group is less collaborative than it was five years ago. Is that just a matter of busyness and you know that Web 2.0 narrative becoming the main narrative? Or is there a larger lesson there in um, our our interests and our desires and what then actually really takes place? I can't say that uh, we've become less collaborative. I think, I think the, the most that I can say is that our messages have become shorter. <laughs> uh, Twitter has, has changed it, I think, uh, uh, dramatically. Um, and, and so the, the nature of the conversation, I think, has changed and shifted. Uh, and and uh, we're not playing with the collaboration the way that we did when these tools were brand new. But um, but I still run across people who are you know they they, they want to collect some information and they're they're creating a uh, uh, a Google form or some other other sort of uh, uh, voting application they're hobbling it together in order to collect the information that they need to to solve their problem. Uh, so you know I, I think that the nature of the collaboration has has certainly changed, but I I I can't say that the uh, amount has. It may have, but I, it just hasn't been my uh, hasn't been my experience. Well, I've actually wondered if, in part, uh, people are busy doing their own things. But I also think that uh, we kind of idealized levels of cooperation, and in a lot of cases, financial interests or concerns kind of shifted the ground on a lot of the work that people were doing. And uh, so, Tony has a question. So, Tony, I'm going to give you the mic. And I'm sorry, my audio is delayed, so I have no idea when it's coming through. But you now, Tony, have mic capability. You can click on the talk button to ask a question. Uh, uh, just a quick question back towards attribution. 
this might be a bit of a step away from the conversation that you've been having, so feel free to just give, just give me a quick answer if you, if you feel. Um, it's talking about attribution coming traditionally from books and journals and so forth. Uh, but now we have all sorts of different other, te other techniques for, tri um, for attribution, things like the like button for Facebook, plus one in Google, uh, those sorts of things. Do you see that these two systems can merge and merge synchronously? Uh, I, I think that they can. Uh, one of the, one of the conversations that came out of the the conference in Washington uh, this week was about uh, attribution and about authority. Um, and, and I think one of the shifts that that I would see uh, happening is that um, that attribution is is less about the source being authoritative. Although that certainly didn't go away, but it's less about that, and it's more about the defensibility of it. It's it's not did you get that from a an authoritative source, journal, uh, whatever, but why is that right? Why is that true? What is the evidence that you can present that the answer that you've given, or the solution that you provided, or the products that you put together uh, is is accurate or appropriate or whatever? That uh, that that I think that ought to be uh, a major part of the daily conversation that we're having in the classroom is uh, is not you got that right or you got that wrong, but you know defend your answer. You know, tell me why you think your answer is correct, uh, and and uh, and and that way that puts the responsibility on the learner to you know as they are learning, as they're building, as they're looking for for solutions. It puts the responsibility on them to at the same time uh, collect the evidence or look for the evidence that it is true, and it may be a citation or it may be logic. Uh, I mean, this is one of the things that I've, I've often suggested that we need to go back and do is uh, uh, teach rhetoric. Teach the art of, of argument because sometimes there is no citation. Sometimes there is no no uh, authoritative badge uh, that this is true because this person said it. That uh, that it is true because of these these reasons of logic uh, that is true. So so you know the, the scholar scholarliness of attribution I think is still there and, and critically important. But I think what has become more important than it used to be is is our students being able and in the habit of defending their answers. David, you have a question from uh, Carol who asks, in your opinion then, how important is the need for personal networking for teachers to build wider awareness of the future of education? Um, well, I don't know what, <laughs> I, I mean, the reason I hesitate with that is I don't know what the future of education is. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of us, any of us do. I mean, we haven't seen that product come out yet that we didn't know we couldn't live without. Uh, that's going to change. Uh, that's going to change everything. Uh, but I think that that uh, if teachers are are if teachers want to be a part of that future, then they have to be a part of the conversation uh, about that future. And I think that that needs to be part of what it is to be a, a teacher, is being part of that conversation and being uh, a master learner. Um, that's the best answer I can give for that. Uh, will we see the future of education and schooling diverge from the future of personal learning? Diverge? You mean break apart? Uh, I, I I think that. Uh, I like the question is, will the two go in separate directions? 
I don't think so. I, I think they need to come together. I, I, again, I think that our students need to be leaving uh, their school, uh, graduating, whatever, uh, embedded in a learning lifestyle. Uh, we need to make sure that they not, not only have the skills to learn, but that they're, they have the habits of learning, that they don't have the, just the literacy skills, but that they have the literacy uh, habits. Um, and, and, and of course, teachers need to be uh, in the habit of learning and sharing that learning and celebrating their own learning as a part of uh, helping our students come to realize how exciting that can be. You know, if we want our students to become lifelong learners, maybe one of the best ways to do that is to practice that in front of them every single day. So I, I think, I, you know, the, 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 the goal is that they're leaving school in the habit of learning. Uh, um, and and all, much of that is personal learning. Much of that is, is just the, the uh, you know, the, the skills and the knowledge uh, that you're, and the habits and the passions that you're walking away from from the school with. David, thanks so much for coming on. An hour is just such a short amount of time when the conversation is so good. I'm going to clap for you now, which is uh, hovering. Yeah, I know. I, I'm so sorry my very sad internet situation here has meant that I've talked over you a couple of times, and I apologize for that. But it's really been delightful to have you on, and I thank you for coming on the show. Same here. Thank you very much for the conversation. Thanks, David. Coming up uh, next week, Alec Koros on social learning and Dick Gale on appreciative inquiry and positive deviance. Thanks to David Warlick for being a patient guest tonight. Thanks to all of you for participating. Sure hope that you have a nice day or an evening, depending on where you are. Take care, everybody. Thanks and bye.